Our children are going to head out for Children's Church now toward the back. Uh, Sandy Atkinson and others are back there going to help. So uh, as they go off to Children's Church, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we can know you. And through Jesus Christ, you've made a way for us to be right with you. Our sins forgiven. All that blocks us and keeps us from your presence has been taken away by his blood. And we thank you, Lord, that as we come to the Bible this morning, that your word here speaks about how important it is to know you, that really that is the only thing. And so we pray that you will speak to us and teach us and show us the truth. And may we be willing to not only hear the truth, but embrace it and stake our life upon it. Lord, thank you for our children and those who are leading them. And we pray the same as they share your love together, that they will come to see just how much you love each one of them. And at just the right time, Lord, we pray they will each one come to faith, personal faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. We know that there's nothing that keeps any of us from that. And so if there's someone here in the sanctuary who needs to give their life to Jesus, may this be the hour, the moment, that they make the most important decision they will ever make. So we commit this time to you, and we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles to Philippians 3. For a few moments, we're going to continue our journey through the letter to the Philippians Philippians 3 were actually verses 1 through 11. I made a mistake when I wrote that down. Uh, So we're going to go all the way through verse 11 of chapter 3. As we think about what really matters, particularly in terms of faith, spiritually, because that's what Paul was specifically dealing with here as he wrote to these Christians in Philippi. Follow with me as I read these first 11 verses, Philippians 3. Finally, my brethren. Now, Paul was, must have been a Baptist preacher because he's saying finally, and it's just chapter 3. There's a lot more to come. So when I say finally, I'm trying to wrap things up. But it doesn't always work out that way. Finally, Paul said, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh... If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in these verses what really matters. That's one of the primary challenges we face in life is to decide what really matters. It will determine what we do with our lives. And as a follower of Jesus, what you as a Christian, a believer, what you believe is the most important thing will then determine how your Christian walk is carried out. It will have a tremendous effect on what you do with your life. And so Paul is urging these Philippian believers to turn away from all that is not of supreme value and embrace what is of eternal consequence. Because the temptation, even for those who have heard the gospel and embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ is then to revert to, to a works type of mentality. And there, there are churches filled with people like that. There are whole denominations that have become like that. Now, you can argue whether some of those folks are actually Christians or not. I think many of them are. I think they, many of them came to Christ by simply putting their trust and their faith in Him. They believe He died for their sins and rose from the dead. They asked Him to forgive their sin and come into their life. And then they got in with a bunch of people who started telling them, no, to be a good Christian, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And then it becomes a work-based mentality. And that is what the danger was for the Philippian church. And so Paul here is doing everything he could to try to convince these Philippians to not think that the basic, the basic gospel, the simple gospel, is really the best. To not be pulled aside by those who want to make it Jesus plus instead of just Jesus as far as the basis of your salvation. And that is the struggle that continues and will in every generation of Christians. And that's why uh, God gave us this passage, inspired Paul to write what we find right here. The key word is found in verses 7 and 8, and it's the word count. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. And he uses the word again, and count them as rubbish. And so Paul is doing some counting. He's doing some accounting, some bookkeeping, trying to figure out what really matters and what does not really matter. And he's going to show us in these verses that so many of the things that people say are important, that they live their whole lives about are not important 
at all. He had been down this road. Paul knew whereof he spoke. He tried the works, religious, ritualistic. He tried that approach first. And he had walked away from it all because of Jesus. And so when he says this, he's speaking from personal experience. And so as we listen to what Paul says, I hope you'll see what he clearly felt was most important. He's also saying there in verse 2 to watch out for those who would try to alter the gospel. He says it pretty crassly, actually. He says, beware of dogs. Now, this is not talking about uh, Benji or Fido or whatever dog you have at home. This, uh, he's, not, he's not hating on dogs here, okay? He says, beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers, evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. What Paul is saying is, the, these people who are trying to pull you into this idea that your salvation and your relationship to God is all about works, the things you do. It's all about you and your ability. They are mutilating the gospel. They have mutilated it. They have destroyed the power of the gospel. They're taking the power out of the blood of Jesus Christ and they're putting it in their own ability. And there is no power there. And so Paul is using as crass a way as he could possibly have said it. He's saying they're mutilators. They're mutilating the gospel. I think there's a lot of that going on in our world today. It is in every, it's in every generation. There are people who want to take the gospel, and instead of making it all about Jesus, they want to make it about me. Look what I've done. Look what I can accomplish. Look what I can do. Look how spiritual I am. Look how smart I am. Look how good and great I am. That's mutilating the gospel. And Paul is saying, beware, beware of these people. You see, there were Judaizers. Uh, people who had been Jews who became Christians and they were trying to tell Gentiles, non-Jews, hey, if you want to be a good Christian, you have to do this. It's not just giving your life to Jesus. You need to be circumcised like a good Jew. So it's Jesus plus. And so Paul is using this, this idea related to circumcision as a way of saying what they're telling you is mutilating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Circumcision given in the Old Testament was a sign that God gave for the people of Israel as a, as a visible statement that this people belongs to God. These are the people of God. And Paul is saying that now that Christ has come, it's your relationship to Christ that has taken the place of that Old Testament symbol. When you belong to Jesus, you are the people of God. 
You belong to him. That is now the sign and the symbol of that you are a person of God, a part of his family, because Christ has come into your life. And so that's why he says, we are the circumcision. We are the people who belong to God because of Jesus Christ. And then that's what leads Paul into this discussion of what he used to thought matter that doesn't really matter and what really matters. Because he says, those who know Christ have no confidence in the flesh. And then verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. To put that in more modern language, if you want to have a bragging contest about works, I can win. That's what Paul is saying. If you want to brag about how confident you are and how religious you are and how much you've made yourself acceptable to God, I can top you. Have you ever talked to somebody that no matter what you say, they can one-up you? You ever talk to somebody like that? It, it can be any subject. No matter what you're talking about, they know more than you do. They've experienced more than you do. They've got to one-up you on everything. Well, that's what Paul here, literally, though, he's not just empty one-upping. He really has the goods. He's saying, if you want to get into a bragging contest, I can, I can outdo you. I more so. And now we see this discussion of the things that really matter. First, he talks about the emptiness of religion without Jesus. In verse 4, Paul is saying, if you have confidence in the flesh, well, if there was any way to really be confident in the things of this world, the works of the flesh, religious works and rituals, I could outdo you. There's some things I used to be proud of, Paul is saying, and I'm not anymore. The first ritual, he says in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day. Now remember the context here. There were these Judaizers that were trying to say to these young Christians who were non-Jews, most of them, hey, it's not just accepting Christ. You need to do this to be acceptable to God. You've got to be circumcised if you haven't already be if you, have had, if you haven't already been circumcised. And Paul's saying, hey, I was circumcised the eighth day. I've been through the ritual. Now, in our culture, there may be other kinds of rituals that people are putting confidence in rather than that because that was so much a part of the Jewish culture and the Jewish faith. Some people are trusting in baptism. Baptism is a sign. It's a symbol. It's important. But it's not what saves you. You don't go to heaven because you've been baptized or not been baptized. You go to heaven because you've asked Jesus Christ to wash your sin away with his blood. And you've, you've given your life to him. When that happens, you have been saved to the uttermost. And he wants you to be baptized as a sign to the world that this has already happened in my life. But that isn't what makes you a Christian. There are people who've never had that opportunity. Saved at the last breath. Never been baptized. They went to heaven. 
the thief on the cross is as good an example as any of that. Today, Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. Some make infant baptism that kind of a sign. They think if the baby's been sprinkled, the baby's okay. It's a ritual. It's something you can do. You can make whatever kind of ritualistic approach. You can turn it into this sort of thing. But Paul said, I don't have confidence in that. And then family line, he says several things. Verse 5, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so he was saying, if I'm part of the Jewish aristocracy. I have a relationship with God because I am part of the Jewish people. And yet Paul essentially is saying, I was lost before I met Christ. Of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamin, you may remember, was the youngest son of Jacob and Rachel. He was special. Joseph and Benjamin were especially loved. And so to be of the tribe of Benjamin was thought to be a wonderful thing. The first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. And so talking to Jews especially, Paul is saying, hey, if you want to go down that road, being a Jew, a good Jew, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Family line. There are people even in America who seem to think that the family they come from makes them so special that they just get a straight path to heaven just because of the family they came from. Well, you know my grandfather was a preacher, don't you? Well, that's a wonderful thing, but that doesn't mean that you're going to go to heaven. The family line does not mean that you know Jesus Christ. And then race, he continues this theme, and he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He said, if you could have pride in your race, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, not just a Hebrew. My bloodline was clear, is what he's saying. No mingling of Gentile blood. And if Paul thought that that is what made you acceptable to God, your race, he is saying, I could win on that. But that isn't what makes you acceptable to God. God is not looking at your race. He's looking at you, your heart. Do you know him? Because Jesus came for every race. The Bible even says in the book of Revelation that in heaven there will be people from every tribe and every nation, every ethnos or ethne, every tongue will be represented in heaven. Jesus came and gave his life for all people. And this is the gospel that Paul was carrying to the world. It's not about your race. It's not about being a religious person. But people can learn, can't they, to talk this religious talk and to be so good at it and to sound because they know the right things to say that somehow that makes them acceptable to God. It isn't what you know to say, how to talk. It's who do you really know? Do you really know Jesus? 
I read about a little boy one time who brought a dead rat into his house. Has anybody ever had that experience? Maybe some other, maybe something else. He showed it to his mother. He was very proud. He said, Mama, look at the rat. I hit it with a stone, and then I took a stick, and I beat him with the stick, and then I stepped on him, and then I stomped all over him. And about that time, he looked into the living room, and there was the, there was the preacher sitting on the couch. And then the little boy totally shifted and said, and then the Lord called him home. And then the Lord called him home. <laughs> See, we can learn all these religious things to say, but that doesn't really change the reality of what's going on, does it? We can put this, this facade around whether we really know Jesus or not. Knowing him, really knowing him. Not all of these religious things we can surround our lives with. That is what makes you a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here says, it's not, it's not your race, and it's not being the most religious. And by religious, I mean keeping a list of do's and don'ts. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that obedience to what God says in his word is not important. It is. But even that obedience is not what makes you a Christian. You obey him because you know him. You obey him because you love him. Just the empty obedience of the act itself, apart from your relationship to Jesus, that is not going to get you to heaven. Because no matter how many good things you do, it does not erase your sin. But Jesus will forgive your sin and take all of your sin away. And then your obedience to him is because you love him, not because you're trying to work your way to heaven, which is an impossibility. But he moves to this thing of religion. He says, concerning the law, the, the list, a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. In other words, Paul was saying, I was a part of the strictest sect, the strictest group of Jews. They practiced morality of the highest and strictest kind. They even created a whole list of, of rules that aren't even in the law to keep you from ever getting to the law. So in order not to break any of the actual written things in the law, they created an extra list and tried to impose it on themselves and everybody else so that they could never even approach breaking the actual law. That's how strict they tried to be. But it was empty. There was no relationship to God. There was no love. It was all about this list. And, of course, they were the keepers of the list. Some of the things that they taught, this is, there's a, there are hundreds and hundreds of these things, but here are a few that stand out they wouldn't eat an egg that was laid on the sabbath day if the egg was laid on the sabbath they wouldn't eat it if a flea were to bite one of them they would not scratch it on the sabbath day lest they be accused of hunting on the sabbath they wouldn't put vinegar which is something they would use on a sore tooth on the sabbath day because they would be practicing medicine 
On and on these rules went. And Paul is saying, if you want to talk about keeping the law, the list, I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. So if you can have pride in how good you are at keeping the list of do's and don'ts, I could top that because I spent my life trying to do that. And then reputation, reputation concerning zeal, how dedicated you were to the cause. He says, persecuting the church. Remember that? The great apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, he was on his way to arrest Christians. He was there when they stoned Stephen to death, Saul of Tarsus. He held the coats of the people who threw the stones. And he was, he was persecuting the church. So as far as the cause, he was as dedicated as you could be concerning zeal, commitment, dedication, persecuting the church. And then he met Christ. He was religious before, and then he had a relationship when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And then concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless, blameless. There are people who think of themselves that way because they've got their list and they haven't broken that list, they think, and they feel really good about themselves. And then they look at other people who've broken the things on that list, some of them or all of them, and they think they're so, so superior. They feel blameless. Now, they weren't actually blameless. They weren't sinless, which is all that matters. Has your sin been forgiven? Have you been brought together with God? They weren't sinless, but they were blameless in the eyes of men, and that's what they were worried about. What will other people think? Paul spent the first part of his life, that's what it was all about. He was not sinless in the eyes of God, though. And then he encountered Christ. His rituals, his family line, his race, his religion, his reputation, this is what he said about it all in verse 7 then. After going through this list, he said, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. So what I used to think was most important, none of that matters anymore. None of that is what makes me a follower of God. None of that brings me what Jesus can give me. And so Paul had faced up to what didn't matter. What about, what about your life? What about my life? What are things we're depending on and counting on that we think are so very important? Are they really what is most important to God? Only we can ask and answer that question with God's help. I hope you'll ask it. I hope you'll let God help you answer it. But now he talks in these closing verses about what he had gained, what really did matter. Because he says there, continuing in verse 8, Yet indeed I also counted all things loss, all things, not just the list he made, but all things, for the excellence of the knowledge 
of Christ Jesus, my Lord. What mattered the most? Knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus. And he even says in verse 10, that I may know him. Personally know him. Not just know about him, but actually know him. You can, it's, it's one of the unique things about the Christian faith. You can be a Buddhist and not know Buddha. You can be a Confucianist and not know Confucius. You can be a Muslim and practice Islam and never know Muhammad. But you can't be a Christian unless you know Jesus. Not just have information about him or read his writings. You have to know him. And you can know him because he's alive. He's risen from the dead. He's in this very room. And he wants to know you personally. You can know him. You must know him for you to have eternal life. That I may know him, he says there in verse 10. And then in verse 8, continuing, For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul used another pretty crass word here. It's the word for dung. And count them as, he wasn't just saying they're not important. Here's, he's saying they are useless. They are refuse. They are worthless to be cast aside. And all that matters is to know Christ. And all the other is going to flow from that, see? To be acceptable to God and have a life that brings honor to God, you have to know him. And then his spirit will lead you in the way that you need to go. And then he says fellowship with Christ in verse 9. Be found in him and be found in him. He wants us to have fellowship with him. The fellowship of his sufferings. To be found in Christ. A relationship with him. That is what matters. And then finally the righteousness of Christ. That's what matters. That's what he gained. He, he, he gave away all those things that really don't bring righteousness. And he embraced the righteousness of Christ. And we see that there in verse 9. And be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And so Jesus makes it possible for you to stand before God in his righteousness. You don't stand before God in your own attempts at righteousness anymore. When you give your life to Christ, it's his righteousness now that you stand in. I close with the account of an elderly woman. She was a maid. She worked for a man who was cruel. He was mean. And she finally got saved as an old woman. And she became so happy. And he began to notice around the house how different she was and the joy that she had. And he hated her happiness in Christ because it made him realize just how miserable he was. He tried to ridicule her tried to belittle her and finally he, he said to her so you say you're saved 
tell me, how does it feel to be saved? And she said, well, I don't believe I can explain it to where you can understand it fully, but here's what it feels like to me. It feels as though I'm standing in Jesus' shoes and he's standing in mine. I'm standing in Jesus' shoes and he's standing in mine. That's a pretty good way to say it. Because when you stand before God now as a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus is right there with you. And it's his righteousness that God is looking at. He's not seeing your sin. He's not seeing your failure, your past. All of that is gone. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son in you. You're standing in Jesus' shoes, and he's standing in yours. What really matters? That's what really matters. That's eternal. That means you're ready to go to heaven. And as long as you live on this earth, you're going to walk with him, and he's going to walk with you. And then you're going to walk right into heaven in the place that he prepared just for you. A couple of verses of Rock of Ages say, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly to the fountain, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself. In thee. You can do that because Jesus has made a way. And that's what really matters. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being all that we need, for doing all that we need. And thank you for each person here today. And Lord, if there's someone here who needs to give their life to you, Help them now to be willing to do now what is most important. To be willing to say, Jesus, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. Please come into my life. I give my life to you. And Lord, we know those simple words. You promise whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, Lord, if there's someone here today who needs to publicly let others know they've asked you to come into their life. May this be the moment they do that. There may be other kinds of decisions that people need to make here. And you've laid it on their heart. May this be the opportunity that they seize to follow your leadership. And we'll give you the praise for all that you do. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. <laughs>